Father, we wish to sit at your feet, learn your word, digest it, and not just the words, Lord, but the nuances, the little details, the shadow of things that are understood in the text. We pray that you would bring us this insight, for we know we are fallen and you are perfect, and we need to learn your ways more perfectly. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to conform, not just in our minds, but in our actions. And Father, forgive us when we fail, but we understand through this story that you are a gracious and compassionate God. And we ask that we could be more like you so that we can win others to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. It says in verse 1, of chapter 9 and previous to this we had Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and he got baptized and then he was translated beam me up Scotty type of thing and we go right into Saul it says meanwhile Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples <clears throat> now this is kind of reserved language here to breathe out a murderous threat how angry would you have to be can you envision Paul and how he would carry this out. You just starting to point the finger and maybe getting a whip or something. Just angry as can be murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he wanted to shackle them take them from Damascus which is in uh, above Israel to the north in Syria there and bring them down to Jerusalem and throw them in prison maybe even take their life they have a capital punishment so the last we saw of Saul it was in Acts chapter 8 verse 3 he was wreaking havoc of the church he was entering every house he was dragging off men and women and throwing them into prison and for what for simply believing in Jesus Christ that's it Nothing more. Wanting to be a disciple, follow Jesus, maybe tell others, that is a capital offense. Now, it still is in several parts of the world. You cannot share your faith openly in different parts of the world. Now, when I go to Cambodia, in Cambodia, the Muslims are making a lot of inroads over there. And you'll go by certain sections in towns, <clears throat> and you'll see the uh, people wearing the traditional... Uh, Muslim garb, the men, they'll have the hats on and the long robes, that type of thing. And I've always thought, well, maybe we can get in there and talk to them, take the medical team in there and, and talk to them. And maybe, maybe not. You never know how that's going to turn out. In Uganda, they uh, killed one of the pastors for doing that, uh, just going in and talking to them. So they're a violent nation when it comes to the political Islam, which is over there. And there's a group that's not that way, but Saul was definitely of that vein. If you were not a Jew, if you were a proselyte to the way Jesus Christ following him, you could be killed. You could certainly be flogged and punished and thrown into prison. But he delivered these murderous threats. The breathing threatening is really what it means in the original language. He was an angry, violent man, convinced of his own righteousness. He thought he was so right and everybody was so wrong that they had to be forced to believe. You can never force somebody to believe a truth. But that's what he wanted to do, either repent or die. And 
Of course, we would have seen Paul as a most detestable human, having no compassion, no sympathy, and no mercy. He had access, like I previously read, to the high priest because of his standing in the community, and he is able to procure letters of recommendation for his work persecuting Christians or people of, and it was called the Way. Now, there was a cult that came up known as the Way, and it was a blasphemous cult. They really didn't believe in who Jesus was and everything that he taught. They they took that and twisted it. <clears throat> but originally it was called the way. And of course we have the New Testament reading that the people who followed Jesus were called Christians. Christians followed the way. And they had the symbol of the fish, the ichthus that was there. And it's it's interesting how Paul was just so vehemently opposed. And then God, Jesus said, basically, I'm having none of that. I'm going to change this guy. So who was Saul also? What else do we know about him? Well, he was set apart, according to his own words, even from his mother's womb to preach Jesus. So everything that he had gone through in his life was preparing him for this time that he would become an apostle. He was a full-blooded Jew, born in Tarsus, a town in Cilicia. He was a Roman citizen from birth. His Roman name was Paul. He grew up speaking both Greek and Hebrew. He was very zealous, religiously so. He moved to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. He was a tent maker, and all Jewish men had to have some type of trade, and that was his. And he's probably not married. Some people speculated that, well, he may have been married, you know, a member of the Sanhedrin, or at least uh, somebody who had influence. We don't know for sure if he was married. We know First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 says, he wishes that all men were like he is, which is single. And so that's an allusion to maybe the fact he never got married. During his ministry, he had mentioned that he had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn was, but it was certainly a physical ailment that prevented him from doing several things. Could have been malaria, could have been an eye disease. I'd lean towards the eye disease that he had. And in Christianity Today, there was an article uh, about what he looked like, you know, kind of his uh, physique. It says that he was a middling size man, kind of in between, wasn't tall, wasn't short, kind of in between. His hair was scanty, his legs were a little crooked, his knees were projecting, he had large eyes and his eyebrows met. He had a unibrow going across. His nose was somewhat long. He was full of grace and mercy. At one time he seemed like a man, and at another time he seemed like an angel. So that's the description in Christianity today. They did a little digging and said, that's probably what the guy looked like. Now, twice Paul dropped out of the New Testament history. Like he just disappeared. And one was for a three-year stint, and the other one was for about a 12-year stint. Uh, We know that when he went into the Arabian desert about three years, almost immediately after his conversion in Damascus. But when he got saved in Damascus, after three days of not eating or drinking, he immediately went to the Jewish synagogues and started arguing for Jesus Christ in the synagogues right away. There was no time wasted. And then following a two-week visit to Jerusalem, he was escorted out of the town by some Christians who apparently he feared for his life. And they took him to a city of Caesarea. And by the way, that was after three years. There's a three-year break in there. So he was in Damascus and he took off for three years. Then he came back and he visited Jerusalem and he was going around Jerusalem. That was three years later. So as we're in this chapter, time is passing. 
And at the end of this chapter, he takes off for another 12 years, and we don't see him again until chapter 13. But they took him to the city port of Caesarea, put him on a ship, and sent him off to Tarsus in Acts chapter 9, verse 30. And that was his boyhood home in western Turkey. And like I said, Paul stayed for next to a dozen years until Barnabas in the 40s. You know, Jesus' birth date was like zero. They say zero to four, somewhere in there. Well, in the 40s, that's when Barnabas showed up. And that's when they kind of became a team. And they went out on a missionary journey. And he was executed probably around 62 years old, uh, eventually landing in Rome. Some people say he went to Spain. Others say, no, it doesn't look like he went to Spain. But that was his goal, was to get to Spain and carry the gospel there. So that's what we know about him. And this story where Jesus appears to him and blinds him by this light, it's recorded three times in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, 22, and 26. It talks about this. He recounts the event. In verse 3, we have this event. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, Damascus is 130 miles north of Jerusalem. So he was committed to this task of finding the Christian. And and it was at least a six-day journey. And when God got a hold of Saul, Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. Saul wasn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for Saul. And Saul, he was the par excellence executioner, persecutor of the church. And when he gets saved... The church enjoyed a time of calm and peace. And again, Jesus says, Saul, Saul. Now, when you repeat a name twice, what does it mean? And is that ever repeated in Scripture? For instance, uh, it is in Luke chapter 10, verse 41. Remember, Jesus said, Martha, Martha. What was in the heart of Jesus when he said that? When he turned it to Saul and he says, Saul, Saul. There's another time Jesus repeated a name and it was of the city of Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, what is behind that? <clears throat> well, I don't think it's anger. I think it's this idea of compassion. There's this nuance in it the subtle shades of meaning that are wrapped up in the doubling of the name if if you turn to a little child who got hurt and you're going to pick up the little child and the little to even pick up the little child that hurt a little bit and say the child's name was johnny it's a johnny johnny it'd be more of a heart of compassion and that's what jesus was doing i believe when he turned to saul he said saul saul you don't understand what you're doing. It's like there's no comprehension. There's, there's not this idea that you fully comprehend the damage that you're doing because of your pent-up anger and pride. You're causing people to die. You're causing people to get injured. So I believe there was this compassion, knowing that the individual doesn't realize the harm that they are doing to themselves and others. There's a desire to have them turn from the error of their way or at least correct what is going on. There's a, a, this longing for correction, but a heart that is for them truly desiring what is best. 
and a plea that they would gain understanding. I believe that that is what Jesus is doing when he says, Saul, Saul, what are you doing? And Saul finally says, who are you, Lord? I mean, this transformation just takes place. That's his next comment in verse 5. Who are you, Lord, Saul asked. So there was a stark realization that something is not right, and the proper response is, Lord. Now, this term Lord is curios. Curios is the possessor or disposer of a thing. It's a title of honor, expressive of respect and reverence, which servants would greet their masters with. And this is a title given to God and to the Messiah. So Paul, being a Jew, knows that this isn't just somebody from the town of Jerusalem. This is something bigger than that. And he immediately gets in the state of humility and goes, Who are you, Lord? Because he's blinded by this light. And of course, the people that were there with him, they didn't see it, but they heard what was going on, but really didn't comprehend what was taking place. He says, Jesus goes on to say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So, okay, well, I'm going to get up. These people around me, they're going to help me into the city. Now, this is the NIV version. Depending on the Greek translation, there's more that is to this that is given to us in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 5, in the King James Version. Lord's calling, so pay attention, all right, with that. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecuted. And then this is added in some of the Greek translations. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, what is that? It's an ox goad. An ox goad had this little sharp point, this hook on it. And somebody who was tilling the ground to keep the oxen in line would grab that thing. And I explained this a few weeks ago. You'd grab that thing and that sharp point would go to the leg of the ox. What would the ox do? Kick back. It's like, that hurts. Knock it off. And so in this particular translation of the Greek, what is taking place is God is convicting him and he's kicking back against it. He doesn't want the conviction that's coming along with the error he's committed, the sin that he has committed, the persecution that he is participating in. And Jesus says to him, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. It goes on to say, And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will thou have me do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. So that's the King James Version. And it goes to a different text in the Greek. The NIV decided, well, that was not the oldest, most reliable text, so they didn't put it in there. But is it in keeping with what solid doctrine is? Well, it is. It it doesn't change anything at all. And that's why it's important we go to different versions of the Bible to look this up. Now, have you ever kicked against the goats? Have you ever been doing something and the Lord comes in with that little goat and whacks you a little bit on the hiney? And you go, and you just totally disregard it and you keep on going the way you want to go. Well, that's what Paul was doing, and I think we do that a lot too. We just, we disregard when the Lord gives us a verse, you know, it comes to our mind, like, ought not to do that, 
And we do it anyhow. And we're kicking against the goads. And that's what Paul had been doing. He knew on the inside what he was doing was wrong. What scripture says is God has placed his law in our hearts. We know what morality is. Unless there's some type of brain malfunction. And they know about this. That certain parts of the brains like for psychotics. They have no remorse for any crime against another person they might commit. They, they just think it's another way to act. And, but Paul, he knew that these things were wrong. Now in the book of Romans chapter 2, it talks about the Gentiles and how they'll be judged. Those who are judged apart from the law will be judged apart from the law. Those who have the law will be judged by the law. And the Gentiles, they do things because it's written in their heart. They do things that are right because it's right there. In verse 15 of chapter 2, it says, Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Every child who is born, unless there's some type of brain damage, they know what is right and wrong. All you have to have is a two-year-old. You know, the two-year-old, you tell them no, and what do they do anyhow? They do it anyhow. A little side note. My grandson, Steele, uh, before my daughter left, uh, they went to a park up where they live, and it was after a rain, and there was this puddle in the middle of the field. And she's, she got this on video, and she's walking up. For, at first, he just got his hands in the mud and just kind of picked it up and went like this. Before you knew it, He's laying in the puddle, rolling, and it's cold. He has a jacket on. He's just rolling in his full clothes in the puddle right there. And she, I I think she thought, oh, that's kind of cute. You know, okay, we're just going to let him get by with it this time. Well, he did it again. And my daughter was not happy about that second time, you know, because it creates a mess. You're at the park. You got to put the child in the car. You got to take off the clothes. It's just a mess. And he knew he wasn't supposed to do it, but he did it anyhow. He just kicked against the goad, what it, what it was, the, the prick. <clears throat> and we do that same thing, and we get all messy. We get all muddy, and God, the Father has to come along and clean us all up, and We do the exact same thing. Nothing changes from our birth to our death. We're all in line with resisting God and the Holy Spirit. Even though we understand right and wrong, it's in our hearts. And why do people continue to do that? Well, eventually God just says, okay, have it your way. Do what you want. And that's when the judgment will eventually come. Now, with this particular passage here, even though it's not included in the NIV, the NIV uh, omits several verses and people say see that's why it's not a good translation well and i can give you some of these verses and you can look them up later Uh, like in the niv i think it goes from verse five to seven in this particular passage i'd have to go back and look at it but there's text inside that is missing but there's other verses like in matthew 17 21 luke 23 17 and john chapter 5 verse 4 they are not in the text in the NIV, but they are footnoted down at the bottom. There's also two sets of texts that they'll have a heading in the NIV, but they won't in the King James have the same heading, and it's two stories. 
they say some of the oldest, most reliable manuscripts do not have these particular stories. And one of them is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. That's where you'll be able to pick up snakes, you know, and drink poison and you won't die, that type of thing. <clears throat> and some churches do that and some people die. And it, it's like, well, you know, maybe that was for the apostolic age. We don't know exactly. But it wasn't included in the original text that the NIV translators were using. And also the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 7 and through chapter 8, verse 11. That is not in some of the oldest, most reliable manuscripts. And so there are sections of scripture that you may not find in a particular version that you're there. And that's why I would say to you again, it's always good to go through other versions of the Bible just to see what the full text or context might be. There may be something added that was originally there. And something maybe was excluded and they included it in another version of the Greek. And so we we just want to do that to get to the point of the passage. Now, the most important question that Paul asks is a question that we should always ask. Always ask the right question. Now, Saul responds with two of the most important questions anyone can ask. And they are, who are you, Lord? And most everyone has questions that they would like to ask God. A recent Gallup survey asked people to choose three questions they would most like to ask God. And I I looked up a couple of different studies on this, and they all, and you'll remember this, I've given this to you before, all questions are in four categories normally. Origin, morality, meaning, or destiny. Where did I come from? Was creation real? Morality, what can I do? What should I avoid? Meaning, why is this happening? And the last one, destiny, where am I going after I die? Where where does everybody go? What happens to us after we die? Well, here are some of the questions. Will there ever be lasting world peace? Now, this is a uh, survey that they're taking to people of the world. Another question is, how can I be a better person? Another one, what does the future hold for my family and me? Of course, that's destiny. The previous one was morality. Will there ever be a cure for diseases? Like meaning, like why do people get sick? Is there, <clears throat> why is there suffering in the world? Again, meaning. Some other questions that youth like to ask, and this is usually a big one, why is there suffering? Why do we go through suffering? If there's a loving God, why is there evil? If there's a loving God, why do we suffer? Is Jesus God? Who created you? Why did you create me? Why did you create evil? What is heaven like? Are hell and Satan real? Don't all religions lead to you? Can I lose my salvation? What about those who have never heard of Jesus? Those are all basic questions, and we should all have answers to these questions. These I can remember becoming a Christian and afterwards having these questions, specifically the one about what happens to those who have never heard of Jesus. I remember sitting in another pastor's office. It was a missionary alliance church. I happened to find out who this pastor was, and I said, I have some questions. And he was able to answer that question for me. What happens to people who never hear about Jesus? Are they held culpable? Are they still guilty? Do they get to go to heaven by default? We should be able to answer those questions. These are basic questions that usually everyone has. Remember, it's origin, 
uh, morality, meaning, and destiny. Those things we should have under our hats, ready to go at just the flip of a switch. So, and it's strange that people would want to ask God these questions when they are already answered in the Bible. They haven't gotten into the Bible. They're searching, most of them, and some want to know the answers. Some will be contentious and really don't want the answers. They just want to argue is what they do. <clears throat> I responded to something that was on Twitter. I, I re-upped on Twitter when Elon Musk took it over because I thought, oh, okay, there's going to be some interesting discussions on there. And there's this one guy who is a Mormon theologian, and he had this little video on there, and he's saying, Jesus never claimed to be God in the New Testament. Of course, my hair stood up on the back of my neck, and <clears throat> I said, okay, I hardly ever post anything, and I said, okay, I'm going to post this. And I said, that's wrong. And I quoted John chapter 10, verse 33, where Jesus is asking the question, for which of these miracles are you stoning me? And they responded, we are not stoning you for the miracles or the works that you do. We're stoning you because you, a mere man, claim to be God, is what it says. And I put that on there as I put a period on it and and sent it off and I said Jesus did in fact claim to be God and that's what they understood you know and and it's like I said at the beginning we need to understand what scripture says because there's so many people that look at that you know there's thousands of people that look at that and they get a misunderstanding of who Jesus actually is and who he was to the people then and we need to be able to stand up and refute false doctrine that's one of the jobs of anybody who's an elder you have to stand up against false doctrine that is directive from the lord saying we need to make sure everybody understands what is right what is good another couple posts that i saw in there was about um, the film series the chosen i like the chosen you've heard me talk about it i think everybody should watch it i think it's the best depiction of jesus out of all the films that have ever been made i think this one is good now they take liberty and and i understand that and they're using the company that has two mormon brothers that are doing the production on it but they're not adding money to the effort and and so and part of it's filmed in utah at a mormon place that they have i get all that and there's some controversy around that but the story is good And again, they take a little liberty, but the story is good. And I saw people posting about that like, oh, it's so anti-Catholic or it's way Protestant in its message. And I'm thinking the guy who plays Jesus, I think he's a Catholic, you know, and and they just go back and forth. And some people say it's trash. And it's like, would you guys get a clue? What does the Bible have to say about what he is saying And we need to be able to look at that and say, that's truth or that's error. And I always look at those types of shows with a critical eye. Oh, yeah? What are you saying? Is that right? Is that not right? And I go through the filter of the Bible in my mind. Is that the way it happened? Is that what transpired there or did it not? And is the liberty acceptable? Is it not acceptable? And we all need to be doing that. So... Saul was blind, but soon he would see, kind of like the individual at the pool of Siloam who was born blind, and of course Jesus spit in some mud, and he put it on his eyes, and he said, go wash, and he washed, and he was able to see at that particular point. Paul's problem wasn't the physical blindness. Paul's problem was the spiritual blindness, where he refused to see. Now yesterday... I was going through some YouTube videos and I was 
wanting to just review again, and I do this from time to time, creation. Is there six days of creation or is it longer? And I, I wanted to hear a good debate on that. <clears throat> and I was flipping around going through things and the first one I came to, it was just hard to listen to Be- because the person who was saying it was only six days, he was just kind of in your face, poking in your eye and you're wrong and this is what scripture says and you're not paying attention to the scripture and Hugh Ross was the other one and he's, he's very calm saying, no, the galaxy is 14 and a half billion years old or 13 and a half billion years old and, and they're just going back and forth and then I heard John Lennox. If you ever want to listen to something on creation, listen to John Lennox. He has a balanced view of it. I I think it's good. And it is one of the most contentious things which are out there. And some people, Christians, they can be blinded by their own upbringing in the scriptures and be contentious and want to take off heads. And then there's people who they give a rounded view, an intellectual view that you can go to the text and you can see what's in the text and not in the text. And we want to be those who are giving a speech with uh, salt and seasoning, so to speak, that makes it flavorful to those who are out there. And Saul was not one of those people. Saul was a person that your head's coming off unless you conform to my idea of what the Old Testament says. We don't want to be that. So Paul had this anger issue. He was unwilling to change. He had this pride that was there. His problem wasn't the physical blindness. His problem was the spiritual blindness on the inside. So this begs the question, what is it that we are blind to? Are there doctrines that we hold that really are not scriptural just because we've been raised up in them and that's what we think to be correct? Do you believe in universalism that everybody is going to be saved and God loves everybody because he's a God of love and even though there's judgment, he's still forgiving and mercy overrides the judgment which is there. Do you hold to that? Is there this idea of righteousness and holiness? How tolerant should we be of the ways of the world? Should we accept them? Like this uh, idea of accepting the gender uh, definitions which are out there. Should we accept them and call people by the gender that they choose? Or should we resist that? And should we do that in a contentious form? Or should we say, no, that's just not right? All of these, we have to learn how to interact with the culture in such a way that makes the gospel appealing, even though the gospel is offensive to those who are perishing. God can break through on that just like he did with Saul. Broke right through his pride, his arrogance on the inside, and it just took this act. Now that's when suffering comes in. Tragedy can bring reality into focus. Those who experience hardship become more aware we we see things a little more clearly we're more reflective when you're suffering have you ever been at home and thought to yourself i remember what it's like to be better i just want to feel better and maybe you have a fever maybe you're shaking on the inside maybe you have a problem in the torso whatever it might be you just want to feel better and usually a person like that calls out to god and says god will you just heal me you know would you have your grace upon me and heal me and sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't and that's hard why is there suffering that's the big question why do you allow people to keep on suffering 
And I'll have some stories about that either today or next week. But going on in verse 7, here we see Saul, after he's been blinded, it says, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So imagine if you're Ananias. Some guy wants to kill you. And you're supposed to go see him. And he's going, Lord, hey, you know, this guy wants to kill us. And you want me to go to him? Yes. And he says, go. Now, in the NIV, you have the exclamation point that's there. I believe that's an error. I believe God is just talking. And it says this in the original language. It's a passive voice. It's not a command. It's not an imperative. He just says, go your way and do this. It's like, it's going to be okay. Just go talk to him. So in the NIV where it has the exclamation point, eh, I don't think it's so good. I think the King James is better on that. And so he, he has some fear. He has some reluctance. Can you think of anybody else that had reluctance in the Old Testament? Moses? Lord, send somebody else. God showed up to kill him. And his wife who saved him, you know, I don't want to, I can't speak. He gave all kinds of excuses. <coughs> Excuse me. What about Barak and Deborah? Deborah was a prophetess. In the book of Judges, and she sent for Barak and said, Barak, you're supposed to take these men and you're supposed to kill this guy, take out his army. And, and she, he didn't want to do it. It was uh, to lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and that's what he was supposed to do, and go and attack them. And the Lord has placed him into your hands. He goes, well, I will if you go with me. He was real reluctant. He didn't want to step out. Has the Lord ever told you to do anything? Just step out and go do it. And you think, well, there's danger. There's, you know, there's monsters under the bed. You know, somebody's around the corner. I could get hurt. I could get harmed doing this. And God says, just go. Go and do what I've asked you to do. Go and study. Go witness to other people. Open your mouth. Be that, that ambassador for Christ. Just go out and do it. And it's not that he's pointing the finger because he gives us a will. He's not saying, go. He's saying, go your way and just do this thing I've asked you to do. And if we're submissive to the Lord, we will simply do it. Or do we fear for somebody else? If God calls somebody else to go do something, oh, you ought not to do that. That could be real dangerous. Yeah, you could lose your life. Yeah, you could lose your life and gain all the glory in heaven as well. But we are so fearful sometimes. And Ananias was one of those guys. And he goes, okay, if I have to go die, you know, he, he probably heads off and he witnesses to Paul and Paul gets healed. And of course, Paul was transformed by this event. Now, it goes on. 
here, the second half of, um, well, let me pick it back up from verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me to you that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now keep in mind, Paul had all of this teaching under Gamaliel. He knew the Old Testament. And all of a sudden his understanding was opened to everything in the Old Testament, how it pointed to Jesus. And he was arguing powerfully with how God prepared him to do that. God has prepared you for years to do what is in your future. How do I know that? Well, I've heard testimonies of other people how well, we don't even have to talk to other, about other people. We can talk about Joseph. Remember Joseph from the Old Testament? He was prepared. He was humbled in his circumstances. He proved faithful. And because of that, he became ruler over all Egypt and saved the entire known world at that time. God prepared him for all those years. And he told his brothers, said, you did not do this to me. It is God that did this to me. And God has done things to you in order to prepare you for what still lies ahead. Because he's not done with any of us yet. Now, verse 23, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan day and night. They kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall and here's the three-year interval when he came to jerusalem he tried to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him not believing that he really was a disciple but barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles he told them how saul on his journey had seen the lord and that the lord had spoken to him and how in damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of jesus so saul stayed with them and moved about freely in jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the lord he talked and debated with the grecian jews but they tried to kill him When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So Paul was like the catalyst of persecution. And once the Lord took him, the church enjoyed a time of peace. Now I have to decide what I'm going to give you here. There is much application. Saul was a persecutor of the followers of the way. He resided in Damascus. God blinded him for three days. Ananias was sent to him and told him what the Lord had in store. And Saul immediately was transformed, went into the synagogue, and he became a witness. This is just the facts of what we have just read. He grew exceedingly powerful in his witness and was opposed to the point the detractors wanted him dead. Of course, he escaped After three years, went to Jerusalem. After that, he exits for about 12 years. So what are some of the takeaways here? The most stubborn and obstinate person can be saved and transformed. 
Are you stubborn and obstinate? Most people would say, no, I'm more pliable. Yeah, and when it comes to Christ, are you pliable or are you more resistant? Our nature is to be resistant. Also, hardship is a catalyst that directs us to God, and the important questions of life is what causes us to search for meaning whenever they're suffering. And that's what Paul did. He suffered three days. Have you ever gone three days without water? That's what Paul did. And eating, you, I think you can do that. It's a little bit difficult, but water is not so easy. Hardship can also bring humility or hardness of heart. People who suffer, sometimes they become so bitter that they're going through the suffering. And other people can go through suffering, and it softens them. <clears throat> and we know what the case was with Paul. And somebody who gets a hardened heart, they have a tendency to blame others. If you're suffering and your heart becomes hard, the tendency is not to look inward, but to look outward and say, you're to blame for what I'm going through. And we leave the Lord out of it. Like the Lord might have set us up to suffer and somebody was the instrument of that suffering. Just get married. That's all you have to do. Your spouse is going to be the instrument of your suffering. A lot. It's going to happen because you put two people together like that. And our tendency is to blame the spouse. That's why there's a lot of divorces. It's not the spouse. It's the Lord trying to get our attention. Now, it could be that the spouse is obstinate and you need to learn humility and long-suffering and patience and all those things. Or it may be for the guy that you need to understand what leadership's all about and, and lovingly lead your wife. And it, it works both ways, both with the wife and with the husband. God does that on purpose, links us together for the rest of our lives. And so we just want to make sure we're not focusing on the person and say, you are the one who is to blame. Second time the Lord's calling here. We got it? Okay. So Paul asked Jesus who he was in an attitude of humility. And after he had been kicking against the pricks, he was open to asking. He was opening himself to find meaning. Now... We want to have some personal reflection on that. Am I obstinate or am I seeking after God's will? Am I the one who breathes merciless threats or has a bad attitude to the people around me and just want to get them in line to conform to my way of thinking? That's what Paul was. That's what Saul was before he became the Apostle Paul. And God can restore us if we would just humble ourselves. If we're experiencing that type of tribulation in our lives, we just got to turn to God and say, God, what do you want me to learn from this? I'm open to learn. And that's what Saul did. Turned to the Lord and said, who are you, Lord? Now, with that, the big happening here, and I'm going to go on with this. The big happening here with Saul is that he was blinded and then he was healed. We have two more stories in this particular chapter where Peter has two healings. One is, uh, I think it's pronounced Aeneas, and the other one is Tabitha. Aeneas was a paraplegic. He, he had a mat. He couldn't walk. And Peter said, hey, pick up your mat, start walking. <clears throat> Another one 
It's Tabitha, Dorcas is also her name. She did a lot for the people in the body and she got sick and she died. And Peter prayed for her and she rose from the dead. <clears throat> These healing things, the suffering that comes along, we, we don't have a lot of reasons that we can express the deep, sincere, held beliefs that of why God allows suffering. Because people, they, they won't accept just the straight doctrine. We're sinners. We're the cause of it. It's because of the fall. That's why they're suffering. I mean, that's the bare bones of it. But that doesn't help somebody who's going through suffering or experience suffering because somebody else is, somebody close to them. As I was listening this weekend to John Lennox, William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, and Hugh Hewitt, who's the moderator of the discussion, they brought up a book. And I said, that book sounds interesting. J.P. Moreland talked about it, <clears throat> and it's a book on miracles. Because these are miracles, bona fide miracles that are taking place. Are there still miracles today that are taking place? Now, you might have heard some people say, well, so-and-so got saved. It's a miracle. No, that's not a miracle. A miracle is where something is beyond question going to affect somebody. They don't have an arm. They rise from the dead. Uh, fire comes down from the sky. Lindo Lake parts, and you can walk through it. You know, Something like that's a miracle, Okay. Are there miracles today? Well, this book that was mentioned about miracles, it was written by Greg Keener. I said, I'm going to get that book. Well, I, I got the condensed version. The real version is a hernia-creating hernia volume of a 1,000 pages of all these testimonies of people who have gotten healed. And he starts out in the preface, and I started listening to it. starts out in the preface, and I'm going to read this to you, and I want you to listen carefully. There's a woman by the name of Barbara Kaminsky, and she was sent home to die. She was a teenager diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis. She deteriorated quickly. She wished she could be a normal person, able to drive and live a normal life. She was totally in love with the Lord, and he was her reason to live. From age 15 to age 31, spent three quarters of her life in the hospital, and the rest at home being taken care of. She had chronic pulmonary disease with frequent infections and pneumonia. A surgeon, Dr. Harold Adolph, described her condition towards the end of her suffering. He said, <clears throat> Barbara was one of the most helplessly ill patients he had ever seen. She was diagnosed at the Mayo Clinic as having MS. She had been admitted to the hospital seven times in the first year he was asked to see her. Each time she was expected to die. One diaphragm was completely paralyzed so that the lung had no function. The other worked less than 50%. She had a tracheotomy tube in her neck for breathing. Always required extra O2, oxygen. Could only speak in short sentences because she easily became breathless. Her abdomen was swollen grotesquely because the muscles of her intestine did not work. She also had no bladder function. She had not been able to walk for seven years. She had a colostomy. Her hands and arm movements were poorly coordinated. She was blind except for two small areas in each eye. She was hooked up to various machines. Other machines helped her breathe. Because she could not swallow, she had a feeding tube in her stomach. 
She needed so much care, a nurse or nurse's aide remained with her most of the time. In her words, she was wrapped up like a pretzel. Her feet were pointed straight down, unable to rest flat against the floor, even if someone tried to stand her up. Her arms remained tight against her chest. Normally, if someone tried to pull her arms away from her body, they would immediately clamp back to her chest. Her hands curled up to the inside of her wrist, leaving them full of dead skin, except when periodically someone would pry them open to clean them out. Dr. Thomas Marshall assumed her palliative care in what was assumed to be the final weeks of her life. He recalled that her body was contracted into a permanent fetal position. Her hands were permanently fixed, that her fingers nearly touched her wrists. She sadly explained to the family that the next infection would likely kill her, and everyone agreed that there would be no more hospitalization or attempt resuscitation with CPR. Unable to free herself from her pretzel position or even breathe properly, Barbara felt trapped in her own body. Now, after 16 years of physical deterioration, doctors had sent her home from the hospital one last time. The doctors regretfully warned her parents that it was unlikely that she would survive long enough for them to see her back in the hospital again. Then came the voice. For more than four years, Barbara had not been able to visit her Wesleyan church in Wheaton, Illinois. Nevertheless, her faithful pastor visited her every day during that time. It was Pentecost Sunday, June 7th, 1981. Two friends from her church visited her after the morning worship service. This time, they showed up with cards and letters. Someone had called in a prayer request to the local radio station WMBI, 450 letters came to her, in her care to the church. As her friends began reading the letters to her, she heard a booming voice over her left shoulder. My child, get up and walk. Because of her breathing tube, she could only speak when someone plugged the hole in her neck. They would do this whenever she looked agitated. Her friends, seeing her current agitation, pull, plugged the hole. God just told me to get up and walk, she gasped. Her friends grew quiet, but Barbara insisted and ordered them to go get my family. Feeling her excitement, they dashed out of the room to find her family. The sense of urgency in Barbara's heart became so intense to wait for her family to return. Normally, it would take two people two minutes to get her out of bed. They would slide her onto a lap board and then into a chair. Abruptly, she jumped out of the bed towards the direction of the voice. Equally abruptly, she found herself standing. Her feet had been too deformed even to wear slippers, but now she found them flat on the ground. Then she noticed that her hands were both open at her side like anyone else's. What struck her next was that she could see her hands and feet. She was no longer blind. She removed her tracheotomy tube and fastened her bags, <clears throat> the colostomy, ileostomy, to her clothes with safety pins. At this point, her friends returned to the room. As they caught each other's eyes, her friends started screaming. Her mother came running behind them, assuming that her friend summoned summons had indicated something terrible had happened to Barbara. As her mother entered the room, she froze with amazement. Not only was Barbara healed from her condition beyond natural explanation, her muscles were not even atrophied as they normally would have been. 
having not been used in years. Barbara, you have calves again, her mother exclaimed. Barbara examined her own legs with astonishment. Dad, Barbara now shouted. Just a minute, her father responded. Since Barbara had lost her ability to speak, her father assumed it was Barbara's sister that was calling him. Angela, who was a friend of Barbara, was an occupational therapist that arrived at that moment who knew that Barbara had reached a point of no return from MS. As she saw Barbara bolting from the room, she was horrified. She rushed to take her heartbeat. Wait, she exclaimed. You can't have been in bed all these years and get up and have a normal heartbeat. But Barbara couldn't wait. She headed down the wheelchair ramp with Angela racing behind her with the oxygen tank. Angela kept protesting, you can't, you can't. Those who had followed Barbara out of the room just kept laughing. Finally, Barbara's dad spotted her. Overcome with joy, he waltzed Barbara around the room, her catheter bag still attached to her clothes. Right after she ran outside the house onto the asphalt in the 93-degree weather with feet that could now feel Jesus was already Barbara's reason to live, but now Jesus was the reason Barbara could live a normal life. The next day, visited Dr. Marshall's office. He saw Barbara walking towards him. He thought he was seeing an apparition. Here was his patient, not expected to live another totally cured, or another week totally cured. After the next, or over the next three and a half hours, she had been seen by every doctor in the office none of them had ever seen anything like this before x-rays showed that even her collapsed lung was no longer collapsed he removed all the tubes he could without surgery he declared her to be completely healed her breathing was normal the doctor reconnected her bowel that was now functional that week wmbi broadcast her story the chicago tribune and many magazines and books carried her story and dr Adolf noted that Barbara went on to study surgical procedures and went on to assist Dr. Adolf in surgery. When I read that, right here, you know, Paul was healed, and you're going to see these other two people healed, and there are people, in, and as I'm going through this book, the author starts talking about people who don't believe in healing that there aren't gifts and by the way this book that this is the condensed version of remember the other one the full volume is over a thousand pages of people who get healed and sometimes God heals and sometimes it doesn't but it's always the case that if he does he has a message with it that's what we have from this chapter Paul got healed because he wanted a message and we are possessors of that message. May God put in you an urgency of knowing what the scripture says so that we can carry that message. And if he desires for you to be healed or somebody else, may you not doubt. I read this. I can't wait to get through the rest of the book. And it's the condensed version. It's not the thousand pages. It'll take me weeks uh, to get through it. But it's a reason to have faith. It's a reason to say, you know, this stuff is true and it's still going on and God is still moving. May God give you the grace to persevere. May God increase your faith as you seek after him and may you have an effect on a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Barbara Kaminsky that you chose to use her and for Paul and for 
Tabitha and Aeneas, all these people you have healed because you want a message out. You are compassionate, kind, and forgiving, full of mercy. All of these things, Lord, help us to communicate to that, uh, this, to a world that is dying. And Father, we know you can help us with this, and this is our desire. So may you be glorified in all that we say and all that we do as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, and the church said, please stand.